The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here at Christ the King, and uh, it is good for us to be together and to worship the Lord and to sing to him, to uh, offer prayers and to come to his word, and in just a few mo moments to dine at his table. And so if you are a guest, we're glad that you are here. We're glad that we can worship together this morning. Now, uh, I don't know if you've experienced this, I'm sure you have, that when there is a big event, a big thing that you're maybe anticipating, excited about, uh, a day that's coming, uh, there is this excitement that grows, right? There's anticipation, there's expectation. You know, I think about in the life of the church, Christmas and Easter, right? Just this past week ago, right? A week ago from today, we celebrate Easter. And, and probably many of you, you woke up Easter morning and you were excited to worship, right? You were excited to, to sing about the Lord's resurrection, right? Up from the grave he arose. You couldn't wait to say it, right? And then after the service, you, you probably went and maybe had a, a nice lunch, maybe had a, an Easter dinner with friends or with family, and you celebrated that Jesus is risen. There was anticipation, there was excitement, there was joy. And then there was an emotional drop, right? We can feel the exhaustion of Easter Monday after the excitement of Easter Sunday. I mean, maybe that's just pastors who experience that, <laughs> but, uh, but I imagine it's not. We know that, what that's like, right? And so maybe we come here this morning and, you know, the excitement of Easter Sunday, the excitement of resurrection, maybe it feels like a very distant day in the past. But friends, the good news is this, that today, not just last week, but today, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. It is still empty that Jesus is alive. That Jesus' resurrection isn't important just one day of the year, but is vitally important moment by moment. Every second of every hour, of every day, of every month, or of every year. Jesus' resurrection is significant. And it is monumental to the life of faith. And because of that, because of the significance of the resurrection, we're going to spend the next four weeks talking more about resurrection by looking at 1 Corinthians 15. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. There, the Apostle Paul gives us 58 verses about resurrection. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you, and we'll project the passage on the screen in just a moment. Now, entering into uh, this book at the very end of the book, there's only 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians, is a little odd. Because often, right, you don't read a letter starting with the second to last sentence, right? You read a letter from beginning to end. You read a book from the introduction to the conclusion. And so it can be a little odd to start in the back. And so, so I want us to at least orient ourselves very basically, very generally, to what's going on in the letter. I'm not going to recount all 14 chapters, but what's going on with this church is lots of problems. I mean, the church at Corinth was a mess. I, I think that's the theological phrase we're supposed to use. It was a giant mess. 
I mean, they're experiencing sin and sexual temptation, sexual immorality. There's problems with their worship. There's problems regarding spiritual gifts. There's divisions and factions that have been formed within the congregation. And Paul writes to them, he writes this letter to give them direction and to lead them in the way that they are to go. He calls them to walk with the Lord in a manner that will honor the Lord. And at the end of the letter, he talks about resurrection. It's as though he's saying, for all that I have told you, for all the things that I have said, for all the ways that I have called you to repent, what you must never forget is that Jesus lives. What you must never forget is the gospel that Jesus has given his life, and he was buried, and he has risen again. And so that's what Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians. And this morning, we're going, we're going to look at only the first 11 verses. So follow along with me. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all is to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we ask as we come to it now that you would um, plant your grace and your mercy and your care into our hearts and that it would, it would produce fruit. Fruit that is in keeping with obedience, is in keeping with the call that you have placed upon us. And so we ask that you would help us to know your grace, to cling to it, and to walk in it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So some of my favorite pastoral conversations that I've had are with children. I love talking to kids. I love talking to the kids of the church. I love how the children will sometimes run up to me uh, right after the service, and they'll tell me all about their week. They'll tell me about their de the details that occurred. They'll show me their new toy, and they'll talk about it. I love talking to children. I love talking to children because they're fun, they're enjoyable, they, uh, they don't presume the same sorts of things that adults do, they, they don't take things for granted, and they don't assume things, right? The things that often adults assume, they don't. Children are very inquisitive. And I remember one of these pastoral conversations I had with a child at my previous church. It was on a Sunday morning, it was after the worship service, and in that service we had had a baptism like we just had this morning. And this little girl who was five or six at the time, she came up to me and she wanted to ask about baptism. She wanted to know more about it, and so there we had this great theological conversation, you know, five or six-year-old level theological conversation about baptism. 
And I talk to her about what it is and what it's pointing to and why we do it. And, and in the midst of having this conversation with her, we talked about the gospel, of course. Because baptism points us to the gospel. And we talked about how Jesus died for our sins and he rose to new life. And I said to this little girl, I said, so do you believe this? And without hesitation, she said, yes. And I remember thinking, man, this is awesome. Like, we're doing everything that we're supposed to do, right? Like, like she's hearing the sermons, and she's, she's paying attention in Sunday school, and her parents are doing a great job instructing her in the way that she should go, and she's embracing the truth, and this is so beautiful. And then she paused, and she said, but you know, sometimes, sometimes I wonder if you guys are just making all this up. And so we kept talking. <laughs> you know, I laughed. I didn't get defensive. I didn't get angry with her. Actually, in my heart, I was thinking, what a wonderfully honest statement. This was beautiful, actually. I love that she felt like she could say this to me. And so then we kept our, having our conversation. I told her how the gospel, how Jesus' resurrection, it's not fiction. It's not a story. It's not a fable. We had this beautiful conversation. But that statement stuck with me. Maybe y'all are making all this stuff up. It stuck with me because since then I've wondered about the people that I'm talking to. Not just the five or six-year-old little girl, but I've wondered about the adults. I've wondered about my neighbors. Maybe even some who are here this morning. I've wondered if we wonder that. Do you guys just make all this up? Now, maybe we won't say that out loud, but maybe you've come with that sort of thinking in your mind as you came this morning. And if you didn't, then certainly your neighbors, your coworkers, and even family members have thought that and are wondering it, right? I mean, the logic goes something like this. I've, I've never seen someone resurrected from the dead. Well, sure, I've heard of people who come back to life. They're shocked back to life in the emergency room. Or they're brought back to life on the operating room table, but someone who is dead for three days and is alive? I I've never seen that, so it must be impossible. And so there must be another accounting for the resurrection, right? Maybe Jesus didn't really die. Maybe he was just passed out. Maybe he was unconscious, and then three days later, he just came to. He walked out of the tomb on his own. Or maybe, maybe he did die, and his resurrection wasn't a real resurrection. It's like he resurrected in my heart. And so we have this emotional sort of experience or connection. We try to find ways to understand it, and all the while we're wondering, did you guys make all this up? Well, this actually isn't a new thought. You know, sometimes we can have this kind of chronological snobbery, like, uh, in our day, in our modern day, like, we've come to realize how the world really works. And so the ancients, previous generations, they don't really know, right? They just kind of embrace these sorts of things because they didn't know any better. And so we can have this chronological snobbery, but the truth is, is that doubt and wondering about the truthfulness of the resurrection isn't new. I mean, do you remember one of Jesus' disciples, Thomas, he doubted the validity of it. And even last week, we heard in the passage that we are looking at on Easter Sunday that the religious leaders told the soldiers to, to tell people that the disciples stole the body. They were looking for ways to make sense of it. We even know historically that in this day, philosophically, 
that resurrection wasn't something people held to because the physical body mattered didn't matter. All that mattered was the spirit. And so resurrection actually pushed against the philosophies of the day. And even within Judaism itself, there was a group called the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. And even those who did believe in a resurrection, they only believed in one that would come at the end of time, not an individual one. And so the doubts of today are nothing new. There truly is nothing new under the sun. And yet Paul is challenging those doubts in our passage. And he's challenging those doubts because he says Christ's death and resurrection are of first importance. Did you hear that? He said, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you by which you are being saved. For I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day. You see, what Paul is telling us is that the Christian faith rests on Christ's death and resurrection, his literal death and his physical resurrection. And since it's so important, Paul is going to point us this morning to the truthfulness of it by showing us that the scriptures and eyewitnesses and the grace at work in him testified to the resurrection. And so as we begin this four-week series, that's what I want to look at this morning. These things that testify to the truthfulness of the resurrection. And the first one is scripture. We have this repeated phrase in the middle of our passage in verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So we hear it, right? When Paul is seeking to defend the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he invokes the scriptures. Now, we have to remember and the teaching of the disciples. In fact, we have him interacting with the disciples in the book of Acts. He would have been familiar with their teaching. He wouldn't have had access to the letters that we know of as the New Testament, not yet at least. And so when he speaks of in accordance with the scriptures, he's actually speaking primarily of the Old Testament. That the Old Testament scriptures point to the truthfulness of Christ's death and resurrection. So there are many places we could turn to show, show this. One of them is Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah speaks of the Messiah to come, and he says of this Messiah that he would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So you hear what the prophet Isaiah is saying. He's telling us that the Messiah would come, but he would come to suffer and to die, to take the iniquity of his people on himself. But it's not just the Old Testament that speaks of Jesus' death. The Old Testament also speaks of his resurrection. For instance, in Psalm chapter 16, the New Testament writers understood a portion of this psalm to be speaking of Jesus when David wrote, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. 
You see, what David was saying is that David's greater son, the Messiah to come in the line of David, he will not be left to death. His body won't see corruption. Instead, he will rise. There are plenty of other places we could turn. Places in the prophets like Hosea, other parts of Isaiah. There are psalms that we could turn to, but the point is made. The hope of the Old Testament is that one would come who would give his life for the sins of his people and rise to new life. And that's who Jesus is. The scriptures testify to the resurrection. That Jesus died and was buried and was raised so that our sins would be forgiven. But it's not only the testimony of scriptures that Paul points us to, it's also the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Look at verses 5 through 7. He says, And that he appeared to Cephas, Cephas is another name for Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So you see what Paul's doing, right? He's saying to those who might be skeptical, to those who might be doubting the validity of the resurrection, he said, just go ask them. Just go talk to them. There they are. They're right there. You see, the resurrection didn't just happen. The resurrected Jesus didn't just appear to the disciples or to Peter, but, but to 500. And so if you have a question, you want to know, just go ask. So I want you to think about this for a minute. I want you to think, if, if this was a story that was concocted, if the resurrection was a fable, if it was simply a power play, a fanciful story, why would Paul point to some who are still alive who could confirm it? I mean, if he was making this whole thing up, wouldn't he have said something like, hey, Jesus rose again from the dead. I saw him. Some other people saw him too, but, but you can't really talk to them because they've retired to some like distant foreign land, right? They're living in some mountain home, and you can't get there. Or they've all died, so, so just take my word for it. Just trust me. I mean, isn't that what he would say if he was trying to promote a lie? Why would he say, oh yeah, there are 500 other people who can confirm this? You wouldn't, would you? Because to do so, then you are staking the truthfulness of what you have said upon the testimony of others. And unless you were sure their testimony was true, why would you do that? Or even think about the gospel accounts. Right? Just a week ago, I didn't make a point of it last week, but who were the ones who discovered the empty tomb? Well, it was two women. Right? And some of you know this, that women in this day were not considered valid testifiers in a court of law. And so they could be ignored, they could be passed over. And so if you were making a story up, wouldn't you want those who were witnesses to be considered credible? Of course you would. You wouldn't have women discovering the empty tomb because they could be ignored. You would have Peter discovering the empty tomb. You would have Paul discovering the empty tomb. You would have someone else whose word would at least be trustworthy as far as the culture was concerned. No, you see, the reason that the Gospels tell us that women discovered the empty tomb and the reason why Paul points to Peter and the apostles and James and the 500 is because it's true. Jesus was raised from the dead. And the eyewitnesses, along with the scriptures, testified to it. 
And that's not the last testimony that Paul points to. The last one he points to is the testimony of grace at work in his life. Look at verse 8 and following. He says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So Paul's recounting his conversion. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, then you know in Acts chapter 9, Paul is converted. Paul, who was once Saul, he's walking along the Damascus road. He's going to this town of Damascus, and he's going there because he is persecuting the church. Right? We're told he's breathing threats against her. And so as he's walking along the way, getting ready to persecute the church, he is struck blind by a flash of light, and he hears a voice from heaven. And of the things that are said, one of the things that is said is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You see, along the way, Paul saw Christ. The resurrected Jesus appeared to him. And Paul's life changed. It was transformed. Saul became Paul. The, the one who was a persecutor became a proclaimer. The one who was angry and antagonistic towards the church became an apostle of that church. His life changed, and these verses are pointing to that change. You see it? He calls himself one untimely born. Now, when we hear that, our thoughts think of, like, he was born in the wrong decade, right? Maybe some of you have thought that, like, I should have been born, like, 20 years ago. He's an old soul, right? He's an old, sometimes people have said that to me. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm, that's a compliment or not, but he's an old soul, right? He should have been born 30, 40, maybe 100 years ago, right? Something like that. That's what we go to when we think of untimely born, but, but that's not what Paul's meaning here. When he says untimely born, that Greek word is actually much more graphic. It literally means miscarriage or abortion. So what Paul is saying when he uses this is he's speaking of a birth that isn't of the normal period of gestation. He's talking about a birth that is death. One who is born dead. And he's applying it to himself. Some have speculated that others gave him this nickname as a way of disparaging him, of speaking down to him, but, but we're not sure if that's true or not, but, but what we are sure of is that Paul applies it to himself. And this actually fits with what he says in other places, like Ephesians 1, that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, that we are left to ourselves without hope, that we are born spiritually dead. That's who Paul was. And who he was, he continues to speak of when he says he's the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church. Now, in talking about his spiritual deadness and talking about his persecution, Paul isn't being self-deprecating. He's not glorying in his past sin, but he is instead pointing to the change that has taken place in his life. Because he goes on and says, by the grace of God, I am who I am. 
and his grace toward me was not in vain. The grace of God that is within me. He is pointing to grace. Y'all, that is what changed him. The grace that comes through a risen Christ. And it's not just the change that we see in Paul's life, but we see it in the disciples. Right? I mean, the disciples, they were scared. They were afraid. Right? Uneducated men, but, but they're transformed by the resurrected Jesus. Or even James, right? James, the brother of Jesus. We know in the gospel accounts that other than Mary, the rest of his family thought that Jesus was crazy. You're not the Messiah. We change your diaper. Right? That's the way they thought about him. But, but yet James has an encounter with the resurrected Jesus and he changes from a doubter, a disbeliever, into one of the leaders of the early church and a writer of the New Testament. The transformation that occurred in their lives is because Jesus is resurrected. That is the only explanation for the change that has taken place. That is the only way to account for Paul going from death to life. For James going from doubter to believer, the only explanation is an encounter with resurrected Christ. And y'all, we know this to be true. We know it to be true not just because of Paul and the disciples and James. We know it to be true because of us. I mean, think about your life. Think about your story. Think about the change that has taken place in it and, and others around you and, and in mine. I mean, I've heard some of y'all's stories. The transformation that has taken place, the change that has taken place. Some of you know my own. I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, never heard the gospel, never read the Bible, never went to church. Right? In fact, there were moments in my life, many, many moments in my life, where I mocked Christians. In the church, it's antiquated. It's for people who aren't thinking. It's for the uneducated. It's for people who need a crutch. Like, that's how I thought about Christianity and the gospel and the church. I mean, I was generally moral, but materialistic, and very hedonistic. And so what changed? What changed in you? Well, it's the gospel that changed us. It's, it's the fact that Christ has lived and he has died and he was buried and he has risen again. That is the only accounting for the change that has taken place in our lives. I mean, think about it. We are not strong enough. I am not strong enough. And you are not strong enough to transform your life. Right? I mean, think about it. Like, like, we don't even have enough resolve to eat healthy or to get enough rest or to exercise a, a good life-work balance, right? We can't even do these most basic of life changes. We're not strong enough to do those things because we fail at them, right? I mean, don't give yourself enough credit, right? Every January, we're going to make those New Year's resolutions, and every January 3rd, we're failing, <laughs> Right? And it's not just those resolutions. We know our failings and our foibles. We know our missteps. We're confronted by them every single day. We know we are not strong enough to change our lives, but Christ is. That is the gospel. We can't. What we are in need of is someone who can transform us. 
who has died for our sins, who is buried, who is risen again. We need someone who comes and brings grace through resurrection. And that's what Jesus has done. That is what he has done for you, and that is what he has done for me. You see, friends, the change that took place in Paul's life and in your life and in mine can only be accounted for by the fact that Christ lives. The grace of God through the risen Christ is a testifier to the truthfulness of resurrection. And so maybe you showed up here this morning thinking, these guys made it all up. There's no way. Well, friend, believe me. And believe the testimony of Scripture and the eyewitnesses. Believe the testimony of grace in the life of the church that Christ was born. And he did die. And he was resurrected. And because he lives, so too do we. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ, you do live. That the tomb is empty. Hallelujah. That those who were once dead are now alive. That those who once despised you now love you. That those who were once orphans are now part of your family. We rejoice and we celebrate that. And we ask that you would help us to doubt our doubts, to question our disbelief, and to believe and to rest in our Savior who is alive, who is risen, who has given his life and is reigning today and all time over this world. Christ, you live, and you will live forever. And so we worship you, we praise you, and we ask that you would help us to walk with you. And we pray all this in Christ's name, and God's people said together, amen.